Hello and welcome to another edition of the Moving Iron Podcast. This podcast is proudly provided by Axon, helping dealers move more iron for almost 100 years. Find out more at axontire.com. Axon was started almost 100 years ago out of a passion for keeping agriculture moving. It's that same passion that drives them today. With a vision for a better experience for both farmer and dealer, they set out to create a better way to move more iron. When you partner with Axon, you get immediate access to a full range of products and solutions designed to meet the complex needs of today's grower. Axon carries all major brands and sizes of tires, wheels, and tracks. From custom colors and sizes to fully customized wheels, you can have the solution for virtually any problem today's farmer is trying to solve. To find more or become an Axon dealer, please visit axontire.com. Moving iron in the 21st century. Hardworking people working hard for you and me. Moving iron time and time again. Through the years you'll find us here. Moving iron. Hello and welcome to Moving Iron Podcast. This edition of the Moving Iron Podcast is brought to you by Axon Tire, helping dealers move more iron for the past 100 years. For more information, go to axontire.com and also Arrow if you're looking for a great place to help manage your customer base and help your salespeople sell more stuff. Check out heyarrow.com and all their great products out there. This week, I have uh, Rich Potson back on to talk about what's going on in the economy, and Rich is nice enough to come on once a month to sit down and talk about what's happening in the market, uh, around the world economies and the markets and everything that's out there. So, Rich, how you doing this morning, man? Doing good. How are you, Casey? Hey, not too bad, buddy. Before we get started, Rich, why don't you give uh, folks where they can reach you and, and how they can get uh, get a hold of your podcast that you do. Yeah, they should go to our website at criticalpointpod.com. Dot com. They'll find information about myself and, and free uh, videos, audios on what's going on in economies and markets and some of the concepts I'm using the model. But they'll also find a link that will take them right to a uh, list. They can just click on the login list uh, button, and I'll show them a list on a different site where we keep all the, the podcasts and uh, that we're producing throughout the week and so forth. And some of them free, some of them are locked up for uh, subscription. And then you can also uh, email me at rich at ag-financial.com or um, uh, ping me over at uh, Twitter at, um, at rich underscore pods. Right on. Make sure you guys check out Rich's stuff. It's good information. There's lots of very timely information. And Rich has got a, a different view on the economy uh, compared to some like the talking heads you'd see out there, uh, I'd say Rich is is more more in line with with uh, what's actually happening, not not uh, what they hope to happen. So, Rich, uh, thanks for being on the podcast here. Well, before we started rolling here, we kind of sat down and started talking about what what we wanted to make sure we hit, and and your list just kept growing and growing and growing. So, there's a lot of a lot of things happening right now, and especially on the inflation front and. Uh, you know, you take a look at all the stuff that's going on right now, supply chain issues. we got some we got inflation uh, that's just continuing to grow. You look at the commodity markets and where they're at right now, and they're probably geared up to have some inflationary run-ups here after, uh, you know, post-harvest. We, uh, Sean Hackett and I talked about that on the last edition of the uh, Moving Iron Podcast Markets. 
Um, and you know, you take a look at um, interest rates. Uh, there's not necessarily going up any, but uh, there's there. You know, the Fed keeps hinting that they're going to start this this uh, you know what they call it quantitative or not easing. Uh, yeah, easing of the uh, of the tapering of uh, some of this uh, uh, inflationary or this uh, monetary um, movement here that they're doing. So I guess, Rich, as you take a look at what's going on out there with inflation, how is the uh, overall economy um, shaping up right now? Yeah, let's uh, go over the economy first, and uh, then we'll add the Fed, and then move over to inflation, uh, which I'm very much interested here. I'm finding some new studies here all the time that brings into question these people who are talking extremely high inflation. But first of all, uh, the economy in terms of the percent GDP, we know during the pandemic it crashed like minus 30% and new historical poor numbers. And then, of course, so we stepped in, we printed money, we had unemployment, we did everything we could to turn that around quickly. And we did, we had one of the shortest recessions ever. It was like just a few months when normally I would assume a recession, uh, the type of recession I look for it once a decade, once I call a primary recession, would normally last one to three years. And you can just see a pattern in recent decades compared to the entire history of this country. Recessions are getting shorter, but boy, this pandemic one was. <laughs> Very short. Uh, and it just slammed GDP to actually up 30%. Just an unbelievable number. Since then, it's come down. And, and I recall earlier in the year, everyone was looking for about a 6% GDP this year. We actually got it on a quarterly basis, but it's been eroding ever since. We're, we're back to like 2.5% GDP as latest yet. Some say that's going to bounce a little uh, to finish the year here. So some are asking what happened, why why couldn't it sustain five, six percent GDP throughout the year? Well, it is the supply chain issue is still lingering some of the pandemic unemployment issues kinda of held us back. Uh but basically if you look throughout the history of the country there's nothing wrong with a two and a half percent or higher GDP. We're we're doing well. And so just keep that in mind. And then next comes the unemployment. And the unemployment of course exploded and did not get as high as during the financial crisis, but um, it actually, well, actually, it did go higher than that, but it came straight down, and it's actually fallen faster than what we would normally expect during any individual decade after a recession, a primary recession. And unemployment it should just continue to grind lower for the next five, seven years. To get near the end of this decade, we'll see another spike and unemployment, we'll see another primary recession. But the model is saying <clears throat> that we really run a pattern of seven to 12 years of economic growth and one to three years of recession. It's worked throughout the history of this country. And there's nothing changing that. But I just don't find anything saying we've got a major disruption. It's going to be entirely different this time around. It looks like we're on track uh, to grow this economy for several years yet. And that unemployment will grind lower. Now, there is one issue, however, everybody's thinking, well, we're just not getting people back to work fast enough, and we can't find enough people, we've got to raise the pay to attract them. Uh, something's going on is we've really had about a million people take early retirement, and I don't think people, I don't think any economists is really geared up for that at the beginning of this year. Now, we see the evidence that's there. So that might help keep the unemployment uh, uh, 
situation kind of tight here for some time, even if you back off on all this unemployment stuff, you try to encourage people to get back to work, the point is you actually got a smaller workforce. So that's going to be some lingering issues that are good and bad, a good in a sense, can help support wages, get more money in the uh, people's pockets than what they're used to. For those who are working, on the other hand, for business, a bit higher cost and a bit more frustration on where you find those workers. Now, of course, over time, we'll work through this. You're going to have young people getting old enough to work, and we'll replenish that. But it is interesting how we hit the right moment that a million people just said, you know what, I, I can live for what I got here. I don't need to keep working. Um, so we have to monitor that. Now, in terms of what's going on in terms of day-to-day business in our economy, yes, we still have this supply chain issue, but it's interesting that I just saw a chart this week that uh, the ports off of California actually show quite an improvement of moving. They are moving stuff faster than they normally would. It's just the bottleneck lasted so long that we still have something like 100 ships out there yeah. waiting to get unloaded. So it looks terrible, and normally we'd have probably 30 ships. So, But the point is, they really are moving faster. So I think this whole supply chain issue will be cleared up uh, next year. I hope that it would be this quarter or next quarter. Probably going to take a little longer than that, but it doesn't look like... You can see the light at the end of the tunnel. So I just don't see that damaging our economy may be frustrating at times if you're waiting on something, but uh, it looks like we're going to get through that. Um, on our export side for the world, I noticed that percent year-on-year exports has backed off a bit. And I don't view that as a negative for the global economy or the U.S. economy, but I wonder, can it temper some of this inflation story that we're not moving quite as busy here on the export side. So we do we do want to factor that in as well. Uh, let me scan through some of my notes and my charts here, what I wanted to talk about on the economy. I think that pretty much wraps it up. Uh, we do want to touch base on the consumer sentiment with something interesting that I haven't seen since the 2000s. And what it is is The consumers, of course, were pessimistic during the pandemic last year. You can see a uh, Michigan University consumer center just slammed down. And then it recovered into this year, but just recently started another drop and is even lower than during the pandemic last year. So people are even a bit more concerned or pessimistic. Well, you might think, oh, this means bad things are coming. The consumer's going to back off. History shows that back in 2008-2009, when we had the, the financial crisis, that, yes, everybody was pessimistic, but two or three years later, they were even more pessimistic, and they were wrong. So this indicator is a contrarian indicator, and I'm betting consumers are wrong again, that this was, uh, you normally get a seasonal drop anyways in September, October, people just become a little bit pessimistic during that time of year, it even impacts the stock market. But this is on a bigger scale here where I think it's like a little bit of an aftershock from last year. People are getting a little concerned. Where are we going with inflation? Where are we going with unemployment? Where are we going with uh, you know any COVID fallout or, or additional uh, issues with COVID? But my guess is this is actually a signal to be rather optimistic. The consumers are going to be 
uh, coming back online uh, early next year. Now, the interesting thing is that's a sentiment in what people are thinking, but what are they actually doing with their wallet? And increasingly, I can see my modeling of commodity markets, stock markets, that what I'm what I'm doing, didn't realize I was doing it, is I'm monitoring what people are saying, then monitoring what they actually do. And believe it or not, there is a difference. Um, if you look at credit card and gasoline payments, if you look at why credit card-based consumers, they're spending well. And it looks like there's going to be more spent next year is how the trend is working. So, granted, we still have some issues in our economy, but it looks like we're working through it. And I think the consumer is just seasonally pessimistic here. Usually they're going to be optimistic next year. And it's just going to support this consumerism uh, in terms of uh, then, then supporting our economy. So I think we're going to have a decent GDP uh, next year. But now, taking all of that, what does that tell us on inflation? And I think what it tells us is, yes, the money's there, yes, people can spend, yes, you can support prices, but at the same time, we're getting back to a, a normal economy. We probably will fix the supply chain next year. And to me, that kind of tempers the upside of inflation. So that got me thinking, well, then what else do I have for evidence of that? And one thing that might uh, ring a bell with the commodity folks specifically, uh, crop producers is uh, we see this explosion in fertilizer prices, extremely high. It's panning in people where we're going next year, at least for the amount of corn we're going to plant. But the interesting thing is, you go back to 2008, 2009, you find fertilizer prices were that, uh, at nearly the same level. So we're just back to 2008, 2009 prices. The interesting thing is, though, prices fell sharply from 2008 into 2009. And the interesting thing is, we got a La Nina story that sounds similar like 2008, 2009, when they actually had a great crop, a record crop in 2009. So it does kind of send us a message that, hey, things go up, but they also come down. Right. And if you can find an historical extreme price, you just have to realize, yeah, it, it can come back. And I think that's what's going to happen for fertilizer prices is they'll low down into next year, probably not fast enough to cut anybody's cost. We're going to get higher cost, but it just looks like this kind of setup right here is saying, yeah, but it's probably not going to get any more expensive than, than where it is right now. Um, so then we have to look at um, the, uh, what do I want to go next year to, the velocity of money. And uh, this is an interesting topic that's been coming and going for many years. The velocity of money is really a measurement of, say, GDP versus M2 money, which is just the amount of money that the Federal Reserve reports that's out there in the system. And the velocity of money since the mid-90s has been turning down and now even almost crashing. It's gone from like 1.8 to 1.4 or 1.2, something like that. What that means is for every dollar that can be spent during the year, it's been changing hands about 1.4, 1.2 times during the year. It's been spent that amount of time. When it used to be 1.8 and years ago, it was even higher than that. What this means is money is not flowing through our system as fast as in prior decades, even prior generations. And why is that? Because we printed more money than ever. 
I mean, when we look at uh, the amount of money printed relative to uh, GDP, we have like the national debt, uh, total public debt, I should, um, has from 1980 to today moved from just a few trillion dollars to nearly 30 trillion. Most of that explosion, about uh, 25 trillion, was just from 2000 a day. So that chart is right straight up from the amount of debt we have. And if you take that debt and divide it by um, sort of a percentage of GDP, we're up into the 130, uh, 130% range, and economists normally get nervous that a country is setting itself up for problems when we're at 120% or higher, okay? And so we're there, but <clears throat> the problem I find is that rating uh, in terms of showing any proof that a country had problems, you find it only in the third world countries. And we're a first world country, and it just seems like the most developed countries can actually handle that debt better than others. And it's just their system, their infrastructure, how they run their country, how productive, creative they are. So this is not bothering me as much as other economists, but it is something to consider, that we've really piled on a lot of printed money. Well, the problem is, not only printed money, but it's translated in actual debt and businesses, private homes, and our households, I should say, as well as uh, the federal government. But if that's the case, why is this loss in money dropping? Because there ought to be more money than ever out there. And what I've learned is that something like 10% of the population owns 80% of the stock market. So that's the rich. And the point is, whoever has the most amount of assets, as this money flows through our system, most of that money and profits, dividends, whatever, has got to go to the people who own those assets. So what's going on is the loss of money is warning us, sure, you're putting more money, you're pumping more money in the system, but really the middle class and poor aren't getting it. It's just going over onto the rich, big business. And who manages the money of the rich? If they're not building a new factory or starting a business, it's really the banker, Wall Streeter, who's managing the money. So that money just stays into uh, creating. It really doesn't go out there and create jobs. It really doesn't go out there and build business. So we have a real problem in this country. A lot of this kind of money is really going nowhere, it's doing nothing, and it's not showing up at least in the middle class and the hands of the poor. Therefore, they can't spend it. And inflation, if you look at when we've had the highest historical inflation in this country, it's when people were spending money just as fast as they can make it, and they were making more money. So it's an interesting scenario and, a, and, and a kind of a concerning one here that it's like the Fed doing all this work to try to build the U.S. economy when really the system is just putting most of that money in one small, uh, small area. And that just tells me that's why in the past it had been difficult to raise inflation because a lot of that money just wasn't even going out there to be spent out on Main Street. It just couldn't push inflation higher. And I think that trend is still locked in place here. And so it brings me this question of where is inflation going and what about people who are saying, well, we've got massive inflation coming. They're just looking at that amount of debt. They're looking at that amount of printing, uh, printing money, and it's huge. And they haven't seen that in prior uh, decades and generations. So I get it that they're concerned, saying, well, that should 
boost inflation. It has in the past. But in my opinion, we should have already seen 10 or 20% inflation instead of the 5.4 or whatever at the bottom, okay? Um, so to me, there's an issue here that the system just doesn't work that way to really bring about uh, serious inflation. And that then brings me to saying, well, okay, if we got some of these people on TV, you know, and they're hollering that, hey, we've got serious inflation coming, the country's going to implode. But come to conclusion, some of them are actually trying to encourage the Federal Reserve to raise interest rates and temper inflation. Some of them are simply, simply believe this is going to happen. And they're making huge bets in inflation products here to, to move the markets higher and to help push inflation higher. And are they right? And I've come to the conclusion when we look at the broader marketplace, there is a fund called Inflation Expectations. It's an exchange-traded fund. You just buy it just like a stock. It's actually tied to the debt market that has built-in inflation protection. They're called TIPS. And that product, uh, basically, that shares have exploded from like 22 on up to around $30 last year and this year. But we can now see that for several weeks here, it's kind of acting toppy, like it doesn't want to go higher. And I think what's going on is some of those investors betting on high inflation are saying, maybe this won't continue to move higher. Maybe it's high enough, and they're starting to back off. So I'm using that fun as a bit of a clue here uh, that not everybody's on the same page for some serious inflation. And that brings me to another fund that uh, is a steel company. It's called the Vaynet Steel uh, ETF. It's the same story, a big run-up from last year into this year right along with the stock market and the recovery of the economy. But really, it has rolled over over the past four or five months. It's come down. And I'm thinking it's really flashing a signal that investors think, even if the economy is growing, Steel, market, uh, steel companies already made all they're going to make out of this recovery, which also tells me there's a good chance prices are about as high as they're going to go, and that things can back off. So to me, in fact, my model's already said for her that inflation fund and for the steel fund, it's in a minor long-term bear market into uh, about mid-next year, it, it ought to pull down. And that doesn't sound like an inflation story uh, if it moves lower. Uh, another one I'm watching is called the Breakwave Dry Bulk Shipping ETF. That relates to uh, cargo ships doing dry bulk, so that would be coal, it would be grains, probably fertilizers, things like this. Same story, big run-up from last year into this year, but that fund has come down a huge amount here. It's dropped from about $43 on down to about $22. Um in just the last couple of months here. And again, I think it's warning here, the big rush is over in terms of how high we get the shipping cost and how much money can be made uh, out of the shipping business. And that's usually what happens with these freight costs is coming out of a recession, sometimes a few years after recession, sometimes immediate, this time it was immediate, uh, the ocean freight rates just exploded and then what they'll normally do is drift lower throughout our um, economic expansion and our, our growth in the economy. So uh, from those Rich, I got, I, got, I got a question here, Rich, <clears throat> real quick. All right, so back kind of 
go back here to the um, to the shipping thing and, and you know the number of ships that are off California. And I know coming you know from you know from China and coming from Japan and coming from uh, you know the 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 Pacific you know side. Uh, there's a ton of ships sitting out there, but why, what's the I guess what's the hang up? You go around to Texas and the ports there, they're they're running twenty four seven and they're they're cranking stuff out there. Why where's the disconnect at? Why is there such a disconnect in sitting outside of of uh California hey. and not, not in the Gulf? Yeah, well I tell you something, it's uh they got behind because they didn't have the help, didn't mm-hmm. run the schedules. Now they got the help to run the schedules, but they still have a ways to go catching up. What I find a little disconcerting is uh, there's someone on the shipping side has been tweeting quite a few ideas how to fix it. He brought out an important thing on um, regulations and whatnot. I think it was the San Diego port. I may have that wrong. And he's using that as an example saying you've created this chain reaction where you can't uh, move this component fast enough, therefore it backs up that one and backs up another one, and next thing you know, the entire ship is just not getting unloaded. And what he was saying is, like, there's, um, they have these, uh, what I want to call them, I want to call them warehouse, but they're actually like a lot, where they put in those cargo containers. They have a regulation, you can't stack them more than two containers high. He pointed out that those containers, the way they're designed, you could stack them six containers high. Right. And so he was implying, he was implying that there ought to be a temporary relief on that regulation, stand those six times. And he says, then that reverses this chain reaction in the other direction where you're going to wind up on unloading your ships faster. So there is some things that could be done on this regulation and just overall management there. Uh, but, you know, are they going to do it fast enough? And I'm a little bit concerned there's some they just feel like, no, all this whole supply chain is just standard economics. You run your prices higher because the demand's stronger. Your supply's not catching up. It's got issues. But the higher price is going to resolve that. And then pretty soon you've got your supply. Well, I wonder if this isn't one of the moments to not necessarily be a standard <laughs> free market capitalist type economy and just say, you need to fix a few issues here to help out. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, my advice out there in California, if we've got regulations like that, you know, hey, make a temporary change and let's speed up this recovery, as opposed to saying, well, nature will just take its course. Uh, it'll work back. And, and it looks like, yes, it will work back. But why not help speed it up temporarily, okay? Then you can put it back the way where you would normally expect business to be done. Yep. All right, one more question then. Back on the velocity of money thing. What mm-hmm. I guess in your opinion, as you take a look at that, like you say, you know, all this money's tied up in investments and you know venture capital money, those kind of things. Bigger, uh, you know, more wealthy folks that are using that money to to you know invest in things and what have you. But I guess as you take a look at, at what's going on there, what are some of the what are some of the long term effects of that? Right, you talked about you know how it's bad. There's not enough money going through. It's going to create you know we've got all this inflation that with money that we've created and there's not enough of it getting spent back through, which is you know doing. That. Give, give me an example of what some long term effect of that might look like. You know, five years down the road, if if we continue down the same path that we're on. Yeah, I think what it does is it limits just how high GDP can go, and it. Um, 
I guess in a way it's kind of protecting us in the sense of this money's locked up, not doing any negative side, but it's also not doing any positive side of creating more jobs, more businesses. It's just like the banks loan a certain amount, and then they want the rest of their amount being traded in bonds and the stock market and whatever else they're allowed to, to trade. Instead of getting right out there and really boosting Main Street and saying, let's build a whole bunch of small businesses, you know? And so it's like, I don't think the velocity of money is doing it on its own. I think it's just an indication that as the Fed prints money, it's like pushing our string. It just doesn't have that direct impact and go, you know, a majority of the money ought to just go right to the middle class and poor, and they find out they don't have to print anywhere near this amount of money to really generate more business on Main Street. And uh, it's been something that everybody's been talking about. You hear this push on a string thing that's been for a couple of decades now. And I don't know whether the Fed just doesn't get it or whether they can't find how to change the system because they're not in control of everything in the country. Their, their mandate is just really help us out during a recession and try to stabilize markets. But at the same time, part of that does relate to our economy. You know? And it's kind of like they just don't have a good, clear system here to put, a, put the money where it ought to be if you want a really nice GDP. And I think that's the warning here. We'll see how this GDP that it backed off some here in the third quarter. We'll have to see how that translates out through next uh, next year here. I think it will rebound, but are we going to get an aggressive GDP throughout this, this decade? And, and it is interesting that I think this glass of money is giving a clue. Well, you, you still have this old system that's really been holding back here for a few decades now um, where... You're just not making the loans and creating the business and boosting wages enough. And my thoughts are is that's also what's going to hold back inflation, keeping it from going as high as we might think when we look at how much money is printed. So coming into into 2021, there are these, you know, epic... Our GDP is going to be 6%, 8%, 9%. You know, we had these big numbers that were getting thrown out there. And, you know, I guess as you take a look at what's going on now, it just feels like... This whole idea of, you know, inflation is transitory, you know, which I don't know what the the definition of, of transitory time frame is, but, boy, they, they keep telling us that this is a transitory thing. What are your thoughts on that? And, and would you consider this inflationary period that we end to be transitory? Yeah, and I'm having an issue with, with the definition as well. I keep saying it is transitory, and then the more I got thinking about it, it's just not I better just not even use that word and just go with what I think is going to happen. Right. For me, probably, I kind of felt like transitory is, okay, explode inflation of 5.5%, whatever we got here you know, this summer. Now you bring it back to that 2% benchmark. And in my opinion, it was transitory. But from what I understanding, some people think, no, you got to even bring it back to the old days of 1%, things like that. And the point is, I see us actually staying with 2 to 3 4% inflation for several years here. I think things will move up that fast, but I don't view that as extreme. I, I have a uh, spreadsheet here with inflation rates going back a couple hundred years. 2 to 3 4% is really not extreme, so I'm fine with that, okay? And, but for other people, they, they don't even want to hear it that it's that high, but... You have to keep inflation up to a certain level to relate 
to a good growing economy. If it gets lower than that, then the economy doesn't do so well. Uh, and likewise, if you slam inflation up to 10% or something, then the economy's not going to do well. So it's kind of got to be in its own little mid-range area. And I think I'm fine with like a 2 3%, occasionally 4%. So uh, I guess my thoughts are another way of looking at this in terms of what this transitory means. If you look back the last one to three decades, you can see inflation had been working down and then pretty much just was stagnant right around zero to two percent and the fed was always saying boy you know we can't we want two percent inflation and we can't get it up to that level they they believed that was a good level for a decent economy they couldn't even get it to two percent for so long now we're above it and i think we're going to stay somewhat above it for quite some time so i fully understand why some might say well then that's not transitory i I agree It's, it's staying here but what I'm saying is the people are out there yelling, you know, 1970s inflation when almost every year it was up 7%. And think of it, every year you're going into the store and it's up 7% year after year after year for an entire decade. Yeah. Uh, I've just not seen that. And I think this velocity of money is just one, one indicator. I don't think it's the problem by itself. I think it's just an indication the way our system works it's harder than ever to push that inflation higher. And um, I'm just starting to see evidence here. I think these commodities are going to pull back from here into next year. That's going to back that portion of inflation off. Wages are going higher, and maybe wages go higher still next year, and enough that it counters the backing off of commodities and various input costs so that it holds that inflation higher than I think. But I don't think wages are going to go that much higher than what we've already seen here, frankly. So that's why I think instead of this 5.5% inflation, 5.4%, I think we're going to see it roll back to in that 3% area by next year. But I wouldn't be a bit surprised if it stays above 2 for a good portion of this uh, this decade. And uh, that also brings us to real estate. That real estate, we've shot that up so fast and that is part of inflation. Um, to me, looking at national home prices, I wouldn't be surprised for another one to three years we still see prices a bit higher, but uh, the rate of return or change in that price is just going to get less. So we're at 20, prices are up 20% this year for the nation for homes. I'm saying maybe next year it's 10%, the next year it's 5%. So we're going to get back to zero, and I think somewhere is around mid-decade, 2024, 2026, 27, we may yet see real estate not only back to zero, but even dipping a little bit minus, and I think commodities aren't going to be doing that. I think when that little secondary recession is what I call it, it's not important enough to call a recession for the entire country. And then we'll see probably another uplift in the economy late next decade, then at the end of the decade is when everything breaks down, <laughs> right. which we can talk another day because that's playing up out. Uh, I really, really am convinced economy is going to do well right into the end of the decade, but I do see commodities, real estate, a few other things not doing so well about mid-decade. And, uh, and again, I think this tempers inflation that we're just not going to see that explosion 
of this whole 7% year after year like the 1970s. Yeah. I think it's going to stay down down that 3% area with a, an occasional blip up to like 4 or 5, something like that, and then back off again, you know. And uh, it just seems to me that some of these people are out there just screaming that things are just going to explode any moment. I'm just not seeing the evidence in commodities. I mean, these commodities are starting to roll over. Oil's off two bucks this morning, and I think I think it can work uh, work lower into next year. Now, that doesn't mean I'm you know a serious bear on commodities coming down, and therefore that's going to pull inflation down a huge amount. I'm just saying we're going to back things off somewhat. All right, so the question and, I have uh, then, so the question I've got right here for you then, is if all this money is getting pumped into the stock market and, you know, real estate and commodities and these different things that we're seeing, does that, is that what you're talking about that's setting up that big collapse we see coming here, like you said, at the end of the decade? Is that where that's coming in at? Do you think sooner or later that all this, you know, house of cards thing would, would sooner or later someone's going to open the door well, and a big gust of wind is going to come in and knock it all down? Yeah, and, uh, and it's a good thing you probably brought that up because once a decade, I'm going to have a, my model's going to have the most important sales sitting in the stock market. And normally, the stock market drops just 20, 30%. But I've noticed every so many decades, it gets a little worse, and you can then find several, every several decades, it gets still worse. And I will say, at the end of this decade, we're due for a super cycle bear market instead of the standard once a decade fell. There could be quite a bit more downside in the stock market. I'm thoroughly convinced real estate will take a hit. It seems to take a hit every other decade, but that relates to having extremely high prices just ahead of it. Well, it turns out 2000s was one of those decades. We had a big yeah. explosion in real estate prices, and then we had a crash. Right. Then last decade, a little calmer market. This decade, what they do, explode the prices. So they're probably going to crash in the end of this decade. And so, yeah, I can see there's some kind of fallout. And I must say, even though I'm one of these people that says, I don't think anybody can predict a disaster by looking at the amount of money. But I don't think there's a magic number. I don't think anybody's going to do it other than they would just put the Johnny on the spot and <laughs> by luck happen to say it's here and then it happened. I just don't see how anybody can calculate that. But I must say, looking at these business cycles, how we do business, it takes us so many years to have good times and then get ourselves in trouble, and you can just see it works and it works and it works. It's like a clock. And I must say, this is one of the more important ones coming. And if there is a blowout because of debt, because of all this money printing, that's, that's the time for it to happen. But it's not the time for it like this year, next year, the next few years, and that's what some of these people are I think scaring people too much. I don't think they're staying invested in the stock market and making as much money as they should because they're nervous about the future. And really, this economy is just getting started in that growth phase. And so I'm definitely in the stock market. Yes, I pull in now every so often just to manage risk along the way, take a little profits. But everything I'm looking at is saying stay the course, stay focused, be disciplined, manage your risk when, when necessary, but stay with it and, and uh, let this economy grow. But it's we got a few years or you know, several years yet to go before we're going to get into trouble. But I must say, at the end of this decade, it may finally be the time for all these people for decades now saying, you know, there could be something bad coming here. 
that would probably be it near, near the end of this decade. But we'll see as we get closer there how confident I am on what I'll actually forecast. But uh, right today, uh, I'm saying, yeah, we print a lot of money, but the economy and the stock market and commodities, they're not going to crash and burn uh, in, in just next year or two or something like that. I mean, it's just it's like 1% probability. So. <laughs> right. Well, Rich, I'll tell you what, man, that, that's some good stuff there. Do you, anything else you want to throw out there before we close down the podcast? Uh, yeah, as far as the markets, I just, I know everybody's gung-ho that's saying, well, this inflation, we've got to keep commodities up, and there's some optimistic early next year. You know, I just feel like I look at these charts and things, and some of these commodities are rolling over. Some of these commodities are having a difficult time going up there, and uh, I just think you got to look for the downside, and... Uh, uh, you know, I can see these greens coming down quite a bit next year. If you get a good crop next year, things like that. So just keep your wits about you not to be too bold up here on this commodity inflation story and realize the stock market's probably going to make you money no matter what inflation's doing. Right. <laughs> it seems to have an attitude always going yeah. up. Yeah. And, uh, just, just go with the flow. <laughs> yep. I got one question here. I guess I should ask this earlier, but gold is usually in an inflation an inflationary period. You know, gold gold is that is that moniker. You know, that mark on the wall that's going to show. You know, as inflation starts to rise, typically the price of gold goes with it. Right? Um, haven't necessarily been seeing that. Gold actually is been bouncing around and you know it'll gain 20 bucks one day and lose 20 bucks the next and it's just kind of bouncing all over the place as you take a look at gold and you know bitcoin and all these other quote-unquote inflationary heads hedges um you know gold's been an inflationary hedge for a long time but these other ones that are out there i guess as you uh as you look at that what wh- why is it do why you know if, if inflation is such a big deal is it because of the money printing and folks on Wall Street and those kind of things that just have this kind of preconceived notion that if things go sideways, the government's just going to come in and pump money back into the system, or and that's what's not driving the price of gold up? Or, or I, I guess, what, what's your thoughts on why the price of gold isn't going with inflation? Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. That was actually supposed to be a major point to gold, my philosophy of money thing. Gold is actually supporting this idea that this money printing is just not working to build inflation. Um, it has been so lethargic. Uh, I'm, I'm surprised. I wasn't a major bull in gold anyways, but I've been bullish thinking, yeah, we're going to get a growing economy this decade. We're going to get higher inflation. We're going to get, um, you know, we've got a super cycle turn up in inflation interest rates. And then that gold just sets there. Now, it did have a good bull market, uh, well, was it a year or two ago, but maybe it's just consolidating. Maybe somehow it was already, pre- you know, forecasting well in advance this inflation, and now it's just bleeding on still more inflation to go higher. But frankly, I think gold is telling us that, yeah, maybe Bitcoin's stealing a little of its thunder as, as a hedge tool, but I think it's mostly the gold market. Uh, almost acts like the bond market where it's not that concerned of this inflation. So why isn't it? Because we know we got it. We got mm-hmm. the highest inflation that in many years. Right. And and yet it's acting like so what? And I think part of this relates to real interest rates, which is basically um, inflation versus interest rates. And the point is, I wonder if the gold market doesn't detect that, you know what, this interest rate market can move up a little faster, a little sooner, 
than we'd normally expect during an inflation cycle, during an economic boom cycle, and that's going to take away from the need to hedge. It's going to limit the inflation. And here we are already talking about this paper that today we're going to hear from the Federal Reserve, whether they're starting paper. Um, next year, towards the end of the year, um, the markets are betting that the Federal Reserve will raise interest rates. And it'd be interesting to see if they follow through, because that's a little bit early for them in terms of how this business cycle works. But it might be a sign that that's a good sign. They think the economy's got a solid footing and they want to get going earlier. But the point is, if we can raise that interest rate to try to keep up with inflation, then it'll actually limit the upside of inflation. And, of course, we know you can raise interest rates high enough even kill inflation because that's what Fed Chairman Paul Volcker did in 1980. We're not in one of those scenarios. I don't think the bond market's out to kill inflation. I'm just saying I think the bond market is sensitive enough to it to keep rates up close enough to inflation that it just steals that wonder from these people saying we've got a lot of inflation coming. And I think the gold market, and right along with some of these funds I just mentioned, is suggesting that, yeah, maybe on TV everybody's talking about much higher inflation, but apparently back at the office, they're not really betting that way. <laughs> I got they're you. starting to back off. Yeah. You know? So gold, you know, I wouldn't advise gold can go higher in a couple of years here for a uh, jump inflation around 2023. I just say inflation ought to back off some next year, and I don't think gold can do too much. Um, to, to quickly close out gold here, I would simply say if you like gold, you don't want it to take out this year's low because that's a sign it's going to be very difficult for gold to go higher in the next uh, few to several years, which would also be a sign there really isn't any inflation risk here. So interesting times because you've got some smart people out there saying super high inflation, but it's like I can see where people are really putting the money. They're not betting on this high inflation the way they were six to 12 months ago. Yeah. And, uh, why, why do you think that? Why, why would, I mean, obviously they're protecting their, their position. I get all that. But, um, but why would they come on TV and say adamantly that, this is happening, and then go over here and do something. I mean, that's. I mean, they're protecting. I get that yeah, they're protecting their tradition, you know. But I mean, is that? Yeah. Is there more to it than that? I think I think some of them on the hedge fund side because they can get really intense on their own opinions and even a bit political. And I sometimes wonder are they saying things to wake up the the Fed that they truly believe you better start raising interest rates sooner than normal and quit this. But at the same time, they're actually managing their money. I got to be careful how they they <laughs> what they say. It just it just seems like they got these positions on the better inflation, but they're willing to like trade it short term. They're not really setting on it for long term play. It sounds a little like saying one thing and doing something else. And I I think maybe it's their analysis that they really believe they got this much higher inflation coming. But how they actually manage their money is they're not really fully betting on that direction. And they are in the business of managing the risk. Right. Uh, otherwise, their investors are going to walk out on. And uh, right. so it's just like, I just wonder if we didn't hit a specific group that's on TV and the rest of Wall Street's really not betting that way. Yeah, because it and seems like MSNBC is like the whole, you, you can't watch that without seeing a Bitcoin commercial come on. <laughs> yes, I know, I know, 
And and it's interesting. Some of the big hedge funds are now excited Bitcoin. It's they claim it's a better hedge than uh, the gold. And uh, well, maybe Bitcoin still doesn't have any fundamental connection that I can see. So <laughs> I'm a little concerned. It's just a money boom, you know. It may work today and it may uh, crash tomorrow. Is, is what I'm thinking. But uh, but yeah, it's just I realize the talk is out there, but I'm not finding. There just seems like a significant portion of investors and businesses out there really aren't uh, bold up on this idea of a lot of lot more inflation coming. They're not they're not putting their money where their mouth is at the moment that I can see. Yeah, maybe that'll change next year, but I I don't think so. I, I'm going to stick with my plan somehow, some way. This inflation is going to back off a little next year, and uh, and then yeah, you know, a few years out, I can see another run up, but. For the decade, I'm just not seeing this this massive inflation, and it just concerns me of of uh, we're not hearing enough from the other side here, so that investors and businesses can make uh, good decisions here. You know, yeah. So I'm taking up the other side and talk about it as much as I can. <laughs> right. Yep. Well, Rich, a ton of stuff going on here. There's a uh, there's no lack of things to talk about. We've we've you know you've been on here for almost oh, four years now i think and uh we've had plenty of plenty of things to talk about a lot of stuff to pay attention to uh appreciate you coming on here once a month one more time give everybody how they can get a hold of your podcast and uh your subscription-based podcast as well as also your uh where they can find you on twitter yeah so uh go to criticalpointpod.com and uh if you want to go right to the podcast site uh, for now, just click on the login. We're going to put a different button up there as well, but it'll take you to a list, and that list is just adding to it. It's a scrolling list of what we're putting out throughout the week on economy and markets and commodities and financial side. And then uh, my Twitter handle is at Rich underscore Possum, P-O-S-S-O-N. Right on. Make sure you check out Rich. Follow him on Twitter. He's got a lot of good information he puts out there. A lot of good information on his website as well. Um, that that's for free. And also check out that subscription because there's a lot of great information there as well. So, Rich, man, appreciate you being on the podcast. Thank you, Casey. Right on. Well, I'm Casey Seymour with Moving Iron Podcast. Make sure you check me out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. That's where you're going to find the latest editions of the Moving Iron Podcast. Also, go to movingironllc.com. And if you want to check out and see what uh, Rich looks like, go to Moving Iron. Go to the podcast contributors on the website and scroll down there, and you'll see uh, you'll see Rich's Rich's face there, and you can read his bio and what he takes, what he and, and kind of what his history is. And, and Rich does have a no pun intended here, Rich a Rich. Uh, you know, history here in, in this business. So with that, I am Casey Seymour with Rich Possum. It's going to be smart, folks. Out. You want to have a meaningful competitive advantage to help sell more equipment. Whether you represent the sales, parts, or management department of an implement dealership, there's a surprising amount of complexity when it comes to tire, wheel, and track technology. Let Axon worry about that so you can get back to supporting your customers. Axon has leveraged years of experience to create a streamlined process that gives you a proven path to help today's grower and sell more equipment. The roots of their organization go back almost 100 years to the invention of the rubber tractor tire. Supporting agriculture is the number one driver of Axon from product development through sales and service. To find more or become an Axon dealer, head over to axontire.com. Moving iron in the 21st century. Hard working people working hard 